We're ready for the uh, last session of Goldstein University um, today, and the topic, I believe, is on linkage. 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 Thank you very much. I can go straight back to where. Oh, before we do that, I'll just say a few words about this chart here. Um, Peter was kind enough to call my attention that he has a, a very interesting chart which can be downloaded uh, from the internet. That's right, yes. Um, if you Google for the long wave analyst, um, the name is on the top there, the long wave analyst, um, you enter the website of this gentleman. And this chart is downloadable uh, together with lots of other charts, including John Exeter's inverted pyramid. Oh, I don't know. Um, it's free. Now that's the convergent cycle with detailed data about dates and the extent of the moves. And uh, I will have more to say on that on Sunday, the last lecture. But in the meantime, you might want to take a look at this. And uh, what I'm suggesting is that all this is explained by the model I have indicated here, which was concentrating our attention on these two markets, the bond market and the commodity market. Under the gold standard, they live in peace. There's no war between them. War starts when the government forcibly removes the gold standard. That destabilizes the system and start flows from one market to the other start. First, from the bond market to the commodity market. This is plain uh, propensity to hoard. That's what explains it. There's a protest vote against low interest rates on the part of the savers and practically everybody. They are liquidating bonds and buying commodities. If they can buy gold, they will. But very often they cannot. And then they buy something else. Could be a commodity which they can use in their own production line. Or could be housewives hoarding sugar. Uh, people also hoard tobacco and coffee and whatnot. And that is a swing or a pendulum which moves only so far. Then this becomes exposed. There will be panic selling of commodities and the money will find its way back to the uh, uh, bond market. So here you have a bull market which you could call commodity bull. And this is not usually recognized as a bull market because this is the deflationary spiral. But <laughs> it is a bull market in terms of bonds because that's what it does. The bond price is rising and huge amounts of money can be made by bond speculators in the so this is the bond rule. And these are huge flows, really. I mean, you have to visualize something as big as the golf cart. Think of something else. This is the dynamics. Now, let me ask you a question. You can, I think, you can turn this off now. Thank you. 
So let me ask you a question. Suppose we have this commodity bull. What does it do to commodity prices? Sends them higher, right? So commodity prices go up. What does it do to bond prices? Just a little more difficult question, but it can be answered. Bond prices go down. Yeah, and therefore interest rates go up. Go up. So, if you take the commodity prices and interest rates, you notice that they move in the same direction. Move up under the commodity bull. What about the bond bull? What happens to commodity prices in the bond bull market or in the deflationary spiral? Bond prices go up, which means interest rates go down. So again, when you take the commodity prices and the interest rates together, you observe that they move in the same direction again. So whether it's here or it's there, commodity prices and the interest rates move together. And this is linkage. It's not my term, but this is a useful term suggesting what's going on. So there is a linkage. which suggests that the commodity prices and interest rates are moving together. They are linked. But if they move upwards, both of them do the same dots. Now this is not a rigid link. Why? Because there are leads and lasts, so that's subject to two leads and lasts. What this means is that commodity prices can move first, followed by interest rates, rates later. But it could be in the other order. And again, the same when they both move downwards. The fellow who uh, wrote an essay on this, a uh, British-born Canadian economist by the name Jackson, he described this as if two dogs were joined by a leash, So one dog could move ahead of the other, or the other way around, but only so far, because once the leash is tight, then he cannot go, move further anymore. So going uphill or downhill, interest rates and commodity prices move together. However, this is subject to leads and lags. And uh, that's our subject this afternoon. <coughs> By the way, I use the word in inventory inflation for the commodity bull phase, and you could use inventory deflation for the bond bull phase, because that's when people are reducing the size of their inventory. This is liquidation and this takes time. It's, it can be done overnight. And this is a very painful process for producers and uh, uh, the economy is subject to a whole lot of other bad uh, features including unemployment and and losses and uh, bankruptcies and so on. 
So we don't go into that, but the, the word deflationary spiral gives you that connotation. Very often the inflationary spiral is a happy period because it's easy to make profits for a lot of enterprises uh, so far as it goes because we know it comes to a bad end but uh, as long as it cycle is going it may be a, a boom time boom time bust boom bust boom bust so there it is this is the uh, model and the linkage is a feature of that I want to say a few words about the dynamics of the yield curve. Previous lecture I <coughs> explained the normal yield curve, inverted yield curve in between the flat one. Our explanation of the long wave inflationary deflationary spiral is in terms of major oscillating money flows between the bond market and the commodity market. In addition to this, we shall consider minor oscillation, oscillating money flows inside of the bond market itself uh, to and from between the longer and shorter maturities. It's manifest, it is manifested as a short wave and a medium wave cycle during the inflationary phase, the inventory inflation of the long wave cycle. These minor monetary flows are generated by the uh, borrowing short and lending long. I have another name for it. I won't get up and put it on the board, but the borrowing short and lending long can also be described by the phrase illicit interest arbitrage. Well, arbitrage it is because you are selling the, the long, uh, the selling the uh, short-term instrument and buying the long-term. But it's illicit because it is illogical. You know that you're uh, short-term instrument will mature before you are able to discharge it. Uh, you are just depending on luck that you may be able to refinance. But that's when the problem starts, when too many people have their short-term instrument fall due at the same time and they all try to be liquid or get liquid and they can't all get liquid at the same time and then that's the crisis. Now under the gold standard, I didn't say that in the previous lecture, but I think it's important to observe that under the gold standard there was no yield curve. And this eliminated the possibility, well, ideally, because of course in practice things are not ideal, and then, uh, but ideally the gold standard does not give rise to this illicit interest arbitrage. There is no possibility of borrowing short and lending long because the yield curve is flat and interest rates are stable. And to justify this, I am just uh, mentioning one other word, another key word, is the sinking fund. In, under the gold standard, most 
bond issuers felt it necessary to set up a so-called sinking fund. This means that when they sold the bonds, they took part of the proceeds and established the so-called sinking fund, which was used to even out the market price of their own bond. This means that for various reasons the bond price of that particular issue could fluctuate and it was necessary for the issuer to eliminate this fluctuation because if they didn't it would mean that some uh, bondholders would suffer losses because the bond is not just lending money for a certain period and then getting it back at the end of the period. The bond also involves the possibility of trading. So to buy the bond, you buy the bond because you know that if you, should you need your funds before maturity, it's just a matter of going to the bond market and you could sell it uh, and preferably without any loss. And that's the way it worked. And that's why bonds were so popular and so useful. They were safe, they gave you a limited uh, return, but they also gave you a promise that you could liquidate your investment at any time between now and maturity. So that's how bonds differed from lending money or borrowing money for a definite term. Because the bond implied this trading. But this makes sense only if the bond price is reasonably stable. If it's not, something has to be done. And as I say, issuers of bonds felt it as part of their obligation to set up a sinking fund which went into the market. If the bond price fell below par, they went into the market and bought it. So the uh, bond price tended to go back to the par value. And some other time when the bond price went to a premium, they could just sell bonds out of inventory and uh, so this w was supposed to be a, uh, if not a profitable enterprise, but at least there was no danger of uh, the sinking fund running dry and throwing in the towel. So under the gold standard, this was standard most serious issuers of bonds, industrial or finance houses, whichever marketed bonds, they attached the sinking fund to it, which was your guarantee that you won't suffer losses if you have to sell your bond prematurely. But of course, even before the gold standard was phased out, the sinking funds were phased out. And then, of course, bond prices started fluctuating and the yield curve came into existence. As I say, under the gold standard, there was no justification for a yield curve if all proper uh, bond issues were uh, supported by sinking fund provision. So the emergence of the yield curve triggers uh, extra cycles in addition to the big cycle of the uh, money flows. One is the commodity bull and the other is the bond bull. Illicit interest arbitrage tickles the yield curve. I like this word, tickle. In illicit interest arbitrage tickles. This word is used for fishermen. They, they are tickling the fish, you see, with the bait. So that's the same word used here for in the bond market. 
the yield curve starts to wriggle. The wriggling motion of the yield curve acts as a propellant that sends the rate of interest to ever higher levels. This is the case when <coughs> under the commodity bull they are selling the, the uh, bond speculators are moving, they are selling the, uh, they are borrowing short and, and selling long, uh, lending long. So recall that it was the positive rise of the yield curve that furnished the motivation for bond speculation in the first place. Speculators, first and foremost, banks among them, could derive unearned income from the upward sloping yield curve. They entered the bond market with their long lag in the longer maturity and the short lag in the shorter maturities. Each straddle is an instance of borrowing short and lending long. The short lag represents the borrowing and the long lag represents lending. The purpose of the straddle is to pocket the difference between the higher yield on the long bond and the lower yield on the short. And if I say lag instead of bond, I'm not making any mistake. The immediate consequence of this illicit interest arbitrage is the flattening of the yield curve first, which is so far so good. The trouble is that the stability is impaired. Selling the shorter maturity makes short-term rates rise, while buying the longer maturity makes the long-term rates fall. For this very reason, illicit interest arbitrage undermines and eventually eliminates its own reason for being. Raison d'etre. It cannot continue indefinitely. It has to come to an end. As the yield, as the rise of the yield curve fades, with it will fade the motivation for borrowing short and lending long. The speculators lift their horizontal straddles and often with a loss, thus creating a selling pressure on the long end of the bond spectrum. As the short leg is nearing expiry, there is no corresponding buying pressure on the short end of the spectrum. This is the first ill effect of illicit interest arbitrage. But there is a second as well. There is what is called disintermediation. By this intermediation is meant the mass exodus of bondholders from the longer into the shorter maturities in response to the vanishing spread between the long and short rates. As shown by the principle of liquidity preference, I didn't speak about this, but let's just uh, pass this now. So we, there's a double squeeze involved at the long end of, of the bond spectrum as a result of the flattening of the yield curve. The selling of the bond speculator is reinforced by the selling of the bondholder. Note that the combined selling pressure is significantly greater than the buying pressure created by the bond speculator at the time they initiated their horizontal straddles. So, you know, this becomes a little bit technical and I, I don't really have time to go through all the details, but the point is this. Under the gold standard there's stability because there's no yield curve, there's just a flat curve. But once you start uh, making various compromises, 
as the government and the banks do, first sacrificing the sinking fund, putting up blockades against gold, making the movement, free movement of gold more and more difficult. The yield curve appears. This gives rise to illicit interest arbitrage, in other words, uh, borrowing short to lend long, which is self-reinforcing, but only so far, because once it, uh, it, it goes into full effect, it flattens the yield curve, and then the yield curve loses its uh, stability and goes into reverse. And that's a panic situation, and uh, this gives rise to a cycle. So there's the big cycle, but there are smaller cycles, because as, as we have, uh, I, I realize I'm not doing a perfect job of this, but within the bond market there are also flows between different maturities and also within the commodity market because certain commodities move faster than the others. So this is a complex picture. Our purpose here is to simplify to the extent that there is something we can take with us to understand. And I think the big picture is fairly straightforward. These two big markets and two big flows. First one and the other. The swinging or oscillating movement of money from one to the other. This serves no useful economic purpose. It's just uh, speculation and it's possible because the various <coughs> compromises which the government and the banks make with the gold standard. All right, so now we have this linkage uh, which was not understood by the economists. I want to say a little bit about this. Uh, one big name in economics on the conservative side. He was not an Austrian, he was a German by the name Wilhelm Röpke and he wrote a book on crisis and cycles and he did recognize this linkage and tried to explain it but he admitted that he could not. He could explain part of it but not the other. And a little more progress was made by a Swedish economist by the name Knut Wicksell, who uh, gave a lecture in, in Stockholm, the end of the 19th century, and I'm quoting from this lecture. Logically speaking, it does not seem possible to give any other answer to our question than the following. The level of commodity prices must depend on the rate of interest linkage. A low rate of interest must lead to rising prices and a high rate of interest to falling prices. This is in full agreement with the basic principles of the quantity theory of money. Unfortunately, we are once more faced with the same regrettable circumstance, lack of correspondence between the theory and reality. In other words, he is saying that the quantity theory of money gives it the wrong conclusion, that uh, rising prices should, that uh, a low rate of interest should lead to rising prices and the high rate of interest should lead to falling prices. This is not what is happening because the linkage is just the opposite. If interest rates fall. This is exactly what the model is showing the linkage. Because it starts the starting point, I think, is referring to when the bond is lowering commodity prices and bond prices, 
interest goes up and up and up. They mm -hmm. come the direct point. When the shift goes back and forth again, yeah. then the linkage again is established. Yeah, you're at the turning point. But as long as the flow goes, it's, it's linkage, okay. Subject to leads and lags. So if we compare, he goes on, Knut Wixal goes on, if we compare the wholesale prices in Hamburg on the one hand and the rate of interest in Berlin on the other, it must be admitted that a high rate of interest is associated with high commodity prices and a low rate of interest with low commodity prices rather than the other way around. So he is nonplussed. He, he, he can't offer an explanation. He says our only guiding principle is the quantity theory of money, but it gives us the wrong conclusion. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised because I don't believe in the quantity theory of money. Although Vixal could not solve the puzzle, as he could not liberate his own thinking from the clutches of the quantity theory of money, he made a decisive step towards its solution. Couldn't solve it, but he made a, an important step. He suggested that the clue to the puzzle was not the market rate of interest per se, but the spread between the market rate and the natural rate of interest. So he introduced the concept of a natural rate, which was really the time preference rate. The appearance of a non-zero spread is the danger signal indicating that the equilibrating process is short-circuited and the effect of the market rate of interest on the price level turns from corrective to cumulative. And cumulative is the danger because as long as it's corrective, it's self-correcting and no cumulative effect which leads to extremes and eventual collapse. In more details, if the spread is positive, then the market rate of interest is too low and the rate of interest and the price level will both rise. If the spread is negative, then the market rate is too high and they will both fall. Moreover, the cumulative effect will not vanish unless the spread vanishes. And it's the gold standard which guarantees that the spread could be as close to zero as possible. Well, there are several other authors who commented on this, uh, and I have no time to say very much more about that. I just mentioned the names. Uh, Warren and Pearson wrote a book on gold and prices, which they make a comment on this. Uh, Gottfried Habeler wrote a book on prosperity and depression, theoretical analysis of the cyclical movements. It was first published in 1937, and he mentions uh, linkage without being able to solve the puzzle. Now, I already mentioned the name of Gilbert Jackson, the man, British born, but he lived and worked in Canada, and he was the first one to really try to crack the puzzle. He couldn't either, but he came closest. This is what Gilbert Jackson did. He was the first to see that the linkage was working in both directions, up and down. And uh, sometimes prices lead and interest rates lag, at other times the other way around. In 1947, he published the results of his study on the long wave inflation-deflation cycle, which he was not aware of the Kondrachev cycle, because remember Kondrachev uh, lived under the Stalin era, and 
he disappeared. He disappeared in the Gulag. He was taken to the Gulag and never heard from again. Monetary defenestration. <laughs> so Jackson didn't know anything about that. The contractive cycle came into the vogue um, many years later. But the study which uh, Jackson made covers the movement of the wholesale prices in Britain for a period of over 150 years. In order to iron out the short-term fluctuations, he used a methodology involving moving averages and reducing the noise using moving averages and uh, the uh, inflationary cycle is shown as a rising trend of the interest curve as well as the price level curve and deflationary is the other way around. Neither Vixel nor Jackson nor anyone else who studied the phenomenon could offer a full theoretical explanation for the linkage. Irving Fisher another American, a Princeton man, he was a mathematician, fully conversant with uh, statistical methods and other things. He uh, was also trying to crack the problem using the most sophisticated statistical analysis to establish a causality relation from rising or falling prices to high or low interest rates. But the most he could say about the linkage in the opposite direction was that it was an accidental coincidence. <laughs> That's good. Sounds, sounds sophisticated, but it's just absolutely nothing. Fisher betrayed his own frustration over his inability to find a full theoretical explanation for the linkage when he said the following. There is a puzzling and apparently irrational coincidence which we have so often found to exist between high-low prices and high-low interest rates. And again, elsewhere, he says, at any rate, it seems impossible to interpret the linkage as representing an independent relationship with any rational theoretical basis. He, he dismissed the possibility. He said, since I cannot solve this, there's no solution. It's good. It's <laughs> logical, isn't it? It's good. Well, yes. By the way, this is the same Irving Fisher who, in 1929, said that, thanks God, the stock market reached a permanently high plateau. And bingo, a month later, in October, the stock market nosedived. So there is your mathematics, mathematician, statistician. Well, anyhow, I'm not trying to disparage a uh, colleague of mine. I, I didn't know him, of course. He was not my generation. He was already an elderly man in the 30s, but he was considered as the oracle. Yeah, he was the oracle. What he, what he said had to be right because he knew mathematics, he knew statistics, and he was an economist on the top of that. So, yeah. If Irving Fisher, um, uh, uh, what I found interesting about uh, Irving Fisher was uh, after he lost all his, he did. He lost his, he, his all. He, 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 he just wiped out. Light wiped out. He was wiped, he was, so he was a man of his convictions. But he, in the 1930s, published an extraordinary paper on deflation, on causes of deflation, because it had happened all around him. And he was trying to figure out why it had happened. But by this time, he had lost so much credibility <laughs> that no one read it. Yeah, nobody, would nobody would read it because he had just, you know, been so wrong before. Served him well. <laughs> <laughs> Ironies. All right. Now, what I'm suggesting is that there is a rational explanation for the linkage. Well, actually, it's not the whole linkage which couldn't, because they could explain half of it. Namely, they could explain why rising prices will lead 
to rising interest rates. They would say, and this is true, that the lenders, the creditors, demanded compensation for their loss. If prices go up, it means that uh, future interest payments uh, are worth less in terms of commodities. So they demanded compensation. And they were watching the uh, price level like hogs. And if the price level showed any upward tendency, they immediately raised the interest rate. They would not land without this compensation. So that's logical and acceptable, and this exp explains why rising prices would bring about rising interest rates. And uh, of course it works in the opposite direction. If prices are falling, then this effect no longer applies. As a matter of fact, the uh, borrowers have the upper hand, not the lenders in this situation, and they are, uh, they are simply not willing to pay the higher interest rate, which the lenders would still like to exact. But they couldn't, so they have to compromise, and, and uh, when the commodity price level comes down, interest rates follow down in the same. So linkage works when the initiative comes from the commodity side. The puzzle which Erwin Fisher and the others did not understand is how come that the interest rate change will induce a similar change in the price level. And that is what we are trying to solve here. Oh. I, I lost time, so we, we start, okay, we, we still have time. All right. You can't, live, you can't leave us hanging. No. <laughs> Not out of this. <laughs> You're taking us too far. Yeah. As the rate of interest is stable, the value of total debt is stable. It may change only through a net change in the level of indebtedness. But it has escaped the attention of most economists that the two are now divorced from one another. Since speculation, as distinct from arbitrage, is the driving force of the bond trading, the present value of the total debt may change independently from the net change in the level of indebtedness. Speculative buying and selling of debt influences the present value of the total debt through its effect on the rate of interest. This fact also plays a role in the long-wave inflation-deflation cycle. After the impetus of an initial disturbance in the rate of interest, speculation becomes the dominant force in the bond market. So uh, what I'm saying here, these are my words, uh, is that uh, the, all these economists made a mistake because they simply ignored bond speculation. And the key to the puzzle is to take bond speculation into account and see actually what is happening because what happens is that there are perverse incentives and self-fulfilling prophecies. So, uh, once you take speculation into full account, then the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fall into place. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not pretending that I am doing a top job on this. And this is largely due to the lack of time. I, I, I want to give you a bird's eye view of the whole picture. So I, I could just go on 
and explain this in more detail. But rather than doing that, I would like to cover the topic and then I promise you that this will be made available. And then you can take it and read it at your leisure and convenience. And any further discussion, I would be only too glad to uh, participate in. So uh, I admit this is a little bit technical. I admit that we are working under pressure of time, but that's not the last word. So I'm just giving you this uh, as a guideline for further discussion. In the absence of bond speculation, a rise in the value of total that would reflect a net increase in borrowing, and a fall would represent a net increase in debt retirement. Changes in the level of indebtedness would faithfully reflect the flow of savings. As this is no longer the case because of the presence of speculation, perverse incentives are created in the bond market, causing a short circuit in the equilibrating mechanism. Cumulative processes are unleashed, which ultimately discharge their energy in a most destructive way. And this is something I did not emphasize sufficiently when I gave you this model. But the fact is that both these flows are very damaging. It's very widely recognized that the uh, panic and deflationary spiral is very damaging. It's not so well recognized that the commodity bull is also very damaging. Remember that there is no need for this discount because under, under the gold standard this is not happening. There is no flow in one direction or another which is disturbing. However, once the government is tampering with the gold standard uh, or trying to contravene the marginal bondholder who is doing his job buying and selling and then this effect including the linkage comes into force and does a lot of damage to the economy. It will hurt producers, will hurt uh, savers, and so on. And we just leave it there because of lack of time. But that's important to remember that this doesn't have to be that way, but it is that way. It has been that way for uh, past two centuries because of the government interference with the free flow of gold in the system and, and as a result the boom-bust cycle came, appeared and, and did a lot of damage. what happens. A speculative rise in the rate of interest provides an incentive to go into debt as the burden of debt con contracted earlier at a lower rate of interest has been lightened. Inventory inflation is to follow and a long-term trend of rising interest rates is established. This provides further incentives to go into debt. So rather than being corrective, it's cumulative. <clears throat> when, decades later, sentiment changes, a speculative fall in the rate of interest provides an incentive to get out of debt, as the burden of debt contracted at higher interest rates has been increased. Inventory deflation is to follow. 
and the long-term trend of falling interest rates is established, providing further incentives to go out of that. So again, cumulative rather than corrective. And that's all because of speculation. If there's no speculation, the effect is still corrective. <clears throat> In either case, the speculator's scenario has become self-fulfilling. The speculators are having a free ride on the back of society. As the total debt in the world is a very large magnitude at any time, especially now, even a small speculative increase in the rate of interest can result in a large drop and a small speculative decrease can result in a large jump in the present value of the total debt. You see, this is a question macroeconomics never ask. They talk about uh, these aggregates, gross national product, gross domestic product, gross world product, and so on. But they never ever talk about the uh, the uh, present value of the total debt existing in the world. Because, you see, that's the point which they miss. Any change in the rate of interest will change the bond price. We know that's a seesaw. So now, if you aggregate, if you take the total debt existing in the world, it's clear that uh, change in the rate of interest is going to change that total debt. But the leverage here is enormous. So a very small change in the rate of interest could mean a very large change in the present value of the total debt. And that could be very damaging, and it is. So. Here is something which has been missed again by the mainstream, and we try to fill that gap as well. The dangers of the regime of irredeemable currency cannot be properly assessed without understanding this effect. Speculators can make the present value of the total debt rise or fall for their own benefit in complete disregard of the needs of the real economy. So the lesson is that speculation in the bond market is bad by definition. And it's not needed because the rate of interest could be stable as it was under the gold standard. And introducing gold standard again, we could stabilize. A lot of people say, oh, gold standard didn't work because it didn't stabilize prices. Well, it wasn't the job of the gold standard to stabilize prices, and it cannot even be done. And it's, even if it could be done, it wouldn't be res uh, desirable, because the changes in prices are signals, signaling that there is a demand, increase in demand or decrease in demand, and producers have to adjust in order to uh, remain profitable. The, the economy is changing. It's responsive to the needs of the consumers. And price changes are the signals. So this is not even desirable that the prices should be stabilized. And uh, what is desirable, however, and what the gold standard did do a good job on, was stabilizing interest rates, as witnessed by the absence of bond speculation under the gold standard. That's a fact. There was no bond speculation. There was speculation in agricultural commodities, and. Uh, maybe energy, what have you, but these were nature-given risks and the fact is that there was no bond speculation as long as the government did not interfere 
with the uh, bond markets and the free flow of gold in and out of the, gold, of the bond market. So this is what we have to see. And uh, it's, it's not that we are gold bonds, we love gold, or the shine of gold, or the clinking of gold. It's not that, it's the fact that this is a very important element of the internal mechanism and equilibrating system, which it's, it's really a miracle. It's, you must see whether you are religious or not, doesn't matter, but it, it looks as if God, it's, it's God's finger. Yeah. He gave us gold and gave it a job to do, and as long as it was allowed to do it, it was working. It's as simple as that. Now, I take another few minutes and round it off. <laughs> there is also another aspect of this. I, I must admit I'm very partial to this model, very partial, because it gives you a, a, a firm ground to explain a very large part of economics. And this is uh, the oscillating flows between bonds and commodity markets. Any kind of oscillation is energy. And as you know, energy could be put to good purpose and could be put to bad purpose. And uh, most of the physics textbooks will explain to you the uh, so-called uh, uh, to the various types of oscillation. The, the steady oscillation is very common. It's uh, sound, light, all kinds of phenomena. And then there is, what's the word for the oscillation with decreasing amplitude? There is a word which escapes me at the moment. Uh, temper, not tempered. Hmm? Damped. damped or dampened. I, I, I find dictionaries in one it's dampened, in the other it's damped. Both. So I don't know which is the correct Both thing. Are hmm? Both are acceptable. Both are acceptable. Right. Then let's say dampened. There is the dampened, uh, dampened oscillation, which means that it starts with a large amplitude and as time goes on, the amplitude gets smaller and smaller. In fact, most of the cases it's exponential. So this is dying out. The oscillation is losing energy and it's dying out. However, there is a third type. In addition to the steady oscillation and the dampened oscillation, there's a third type which is not mentioned by too many uh, physics textbooks, but it, do, it, is, it does exist and it's known. And this is the, uh, what I could call the runaway oscillation, which is just the opposite of the dampened one. If you have energy input, then it is possible that the amplitude is increasing. So then you have this kind of oscillation, ever larger amplitudes. So the energy <coughs> level is increasing with time. And uh, there are examples, of real convincing examples of that. My favorite is the collapse of the Tacoma Bridge in uh, Washington State in the year 1940 or 41, thereabouts. Uh, what happened was, this is a suspension bridge, one of those uh, very beautiful cable bridges. And there was a gale force wind, but this had, what's the word, uh, packages of energy. It was not just 
always it, it started a, an oscillating movement of that bridge, started swinging. And then at the right time, another pulse, another pulse <laughs> and then another, and another. So the swing, each pulse was not in itself damaging. It was relatively small. What was damaging is the period that it coincided with the period of the swing. So every next pulse would add a little more and another one and another one. This went on for some 10 minutes and eventually the suspension bridge collapsed, fell into the Tacoma River. And there was, a, the year was 1940, so you can imagine there weren't too many camcorders and mm -hmm. cameras and what have you in those days. But there were, uh, they existed and they were expensive, but it so happened that there was one of the drivers had one with him. And he could stop his car and get out and film that episode. And it's absolutely incredible to watch this. You have to see it to That's believe it. And I, uh, when, when I had this website, my previous website, uh, which was called Gold is Freedom, it wasn't my website, but I put all my archives on that one, uh, then um, we had a film clip. And this could be retrieved and put on there. It's absolutely convincing that you know how, how this started and that the bridge... In the name, in the words of uh, Irving Fisher, it sounds almost like an impossible coincidence that this man would have a camcorder on that bridge at that time. That he might have been a physics student from the local <laughs> university and he had friends that had this prank, <clears throat> this idea that went into the bridge, it would repeat it. This sounds like what college kids would do. And eventually, they took down this whole, now being responsible, they probably made sure that nobody was on the bridge that time. But they probably just wiped out the whole bridge and they have one, mm, we yeah. should get this. Yeah. Now, I'm suggesting that the danger does exist, that this oscillating money flow becomes destructive. Yeah. Not so much because each flow is representing too much energy, that's not it. But the resonance, this is a resonance phenomenon. Yeah. If there is resonance with the input and the uh, frequency of the object on which the impulse is acting, then it could become uh, runaway, uh, uh, runaway oscillation, yeah. and it could just destroy the whole system. And I think that's the way to look at the uh, hyperinflation problem, because the hyperinflation is just one extreme of the swing or the pendulum, and the deflation is the other. But now, if the resonance situation exists, then you can have both, almost simultaneously, and that's the destructive thing. So, yes? Uh, I'd just like to add something to this. This is an aerodynamic phenomenon. It's called flutter in aircraft engines, or aircraft empennage. And at a certain speed of flow of air, the uh, resonant frequency of the tail starts... There's a word for that. Yeah, it's resonance, and it's called flutter. Yeah. Well, I'm a pilot, so I know the phenomenon. The same thing actually happened to me. It's not necessarily pulses. It's just the wind velocity was high enough relative to the bridge resonant frequency to start flutter. And every cycle built up energy from the wind. And I saw that video also. Yeah. You, you can see the same thing. The aircraft being tested the destruction. It starts to. That's right. That's right. So, ladies and gentlemen, time is up. I want to thank you for your patience. Yes?
when you add positive feedback, you, you get a one-way situation to destruct them. And negative feedback is then to zero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a feedback phenomenon. Yes, yes. It doesn't go for an answer, does it? No. No. Okay. It's an observation. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your understanding. I, I repeat, I'm aware this was not perfect, but it's a big subject. And if you're interested, I'll be very glad to provide a written version. Just give me a few months' time, and we'll be in touch very good. through the internet. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I, I, Professor, I, I have to say that through this lunch and this hot afternoon and listening to this thing, I understood it, and I was stunned when it came, when it, it came through, and I, I think this is, is brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And these are things we have to talk yes, about, I, and nobody else yeah, does. No, I, I'm stunned. <laughs>